welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. With just two days to go to the British election, has Boris Johnson dropped the ball? Or indeed, the Ming vase with the winning post in sight? That will be the main focus of our discussion today. Later, I'll be talking to Daniel McLaughlin about the renewed efforts to broker a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine. But it's the UK election first, and I'm going to start by quoting the concluding paragraph of an analysis piece by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, which you can read in full on irishtimes.com. And it goes, Johnson's strategy has been to clutch his poll lead like a Ming vase, trying to avoid mistakes and to carry it safely to the other side of the election. Another stumble like yesterday's could be fatal leaving the Prime Minister's dream of glory shattered in a thousand pieces of vanity, mendacity and callousness. Dennis Staunton joins me now. Dennis, how bad a day was yesterday, Monday, for Boris Johnson? It was a very bad day. He was campaigning in uh, Grimsby and this was supposed to have been the start of his kind of closing push through the country where he was focusing his message about getting Brexit done and targeting Labour supporters who had voted leave in 2016 and persuading them to try to to come over and vote for the Conservatives. But that morning on the front of the Daily Mirror there was a photograph of a four-year-old boy, Jack Willamont Barr, who had been... uh, uh, He he went to the... um, emergency department at Leeds General Infirmary. He had tonsillitis and uh, suspected pneumonia, but there were no beds in the emergency department and he was lying on a pile of coats on the floor with an oxygen mask next to him. And uh, Joe Pike, a reporter from ITV, asked Boris Johnson about this uh, picture. Have you seen the photo, Prime Minister? Have you seen the photo? I've been told about it by the BBC. We need to be making investments. This is the photo. photo. We need to be making investments. Boris Johnson just refused to look at it. He, uh, Joe Pike was trying to show it to him on the phone and Boris Johnson took Joe Pike's phone and put it in his pocket. You refuse to look at the photo. You've taken my phone put it in your pocket, Prime Minister. His mother says the NHS is in crisis. What's your response? Well, I'm sorry, look. I, I, it's a terrible, terrible photo, and, I'm, and I apologise. The problem with the story, first of all, it was such a, a peculiar thing to do uh, on Boris Johnson's part. And, of course, the story went uh, all over the place. It led all of the evening news bulletins. And the the problem with it is that, first of all, it highlights the uh, you know, Labour's strongest issue, which is the National Health Service, and one of the weakest issues for uh, the government, which is uh, the Conservative record on public services and on funding of public services over the last nine years in office. And what Boris Johnson has been trying to do throughout this campaign is really to portray his administration as a new government, as if he He's got nothing at all to do with what the Conservatives have been doing in power since 2010. And the other problem is that it seemed also to reinforce a doubt that people have about Boris Johnson and his character. And the one thing that all of the polling shows is that people, even if they like him in one way or another, or even if they're going to vote for him, in fact, they don't think he's trustworthy. And here he was, uh, you know, not answering this question. And there was a kind of a robotic quality. He was kind of trying to stay on message. And it seemed to be a bit callous because here he was being confronted with this picture of a four-year-old boy in the most terrible circumstances and he just refused to engage. And there was an attempt then by the Conservative Party to undo some of the damage by by sending Matt Hancock, the health secretary, to the hospital in Leeds. And and that backfired not just for the Tories, but actually for some of the more high-profile journalists covering the election as well. 
Yes, Matt Hancock went to the hospital and then uh, as he was leaving, uh, there were a group of Labour activists who were protesting against him. And uh, suddenly this story went round that that one of Matt Hancock's aides had been punched by one of the Labour activists. And this was was tweeted out by the political editor of the BBC, the political editor of ITV, and uh, a lot of other senior political journalists to huge numbers of Twitter followers. And then uh, about an hour or so later, video emerged which showed that no such thing had happened, that uh, what had happened was that uh, Matt Hancock's aide had just brushed past uh, some man who was gesticulating, one of the activists who was gesticulating and it was just a normal thing where he kind of just you know, brushed past him accidentally and there was no incident, there were no police, there was nothing uh, of the kind, there was no assault. And so eventually of course all of these journalists um, apologised, but um, this was uh, this kind of seemed to make matters worse as far as the conservatives were concerned because it looked as if they were you know putting up this smoke screen to try to distract everybody and of course it also was embarrassing for the uh, the journalists concerned because uh, they seemed to be just a bit trigger happy on twitter so far dennis there has been something of the the teflon prime minister about johnson no controversy touching on him seems to stick is this one different do you think or potentially different I think it is. I think it's a bit like one that happened early in the campaign, uh, where there was a bit of a wobble for a few days, when uh, there was flooding in uh, in South Yorkshire, and uh, Boris Johnson uh, was a bit slow to respond to it. And again, he seemed to strike the wrong note uh, initially there. Now that blew over in the end, uh, you know. But it took a few days to do it. The problem with this is, of course, it's happening as we're just two days away from election day, and I think it also uh, because the picture was so dramatic. And because also it's coming at a time when a lot of voters are making up their minds, because although the Conservatives have been ahead in the polls consistently and really quite comfortably ahead in in most polls. There there are uh, more undecided voters at this stage of a campaign than there would normally be. And in a lot of the seats where the Tories want to which the Tories want to gain or or they're at risk of losing, the margin between defeat and victory uh, is very narrow. And so uh, you know if some voters who are traditionally, say, Labour voters, who are thinking because of Brexit of voting for the Conservatives this time, if they're suddenly reminded of what they don't like about the Conservative Party and what they do like about the Labour Party, say, with regards to the National Health Service, then they might just decide that either they're going to stay at home or they're actually going to continue to vote Labour as they traditionally do. And how has the Labour Party responded to this episode yesterday? Well, they uh, they said more or less that it it, it proved their point and it showed that uh, you know uh, that the conservatives don't really care about the health service that you can't trust the health service with them and that uh, Boris Johnson is not to be trusted as well. So these are two major central attack lines for Labour. And then uh, overnight, uh, Labour published some new research showing levels of safety in hospitals being um, you know diminished because of understaffing and lack of funding. And so they they try to maintain that attack for uh, you know, as as the, you know, as night went into this morning. In some ways though Dennis while this episode is a, should be a gift for the Labour Party it does point up in some ways does it do you think the the failure of the Labour Party to make the NHS the the, the focus of this campaign Boris Johnson has succeeded really in keeping it about Brexit hasn't he? 
Yes, and I think actually an even bigger failure on their part is that they haven't succeeded in nailing the nine years of Conservative government on him. And Boris Johnson, uh, his line tends to be, well, you know, I only became Prime Minister a hundred and something days ago, and so this is a brand new administration. And he behaves as if all these actions of the government, you know, a government in which, don't forget, he wasn't just an MP, but he was the Foreign Secretary, one of the great officers of state. And so that he's, um, you know, he's, he's really suggesting that has absolutely nothing to to do with them. And so that instead of the Conservatives seeking a fourth ter- consecutive term in office, which is what they're doing, that uh, he's presenting it as if it's, uh, it's, it's a brand new government looking for a new mandate. And the Labour has so far not been successful in uh, holding him accountable for the actions of that government. And, uh, and so I think that, that this does, as you say, it does highlight their failure to do so. Obviously, what they're hoping is that at this late stage, that that message might cut through now. And with just two days to go, Dennis, what are the polls telling us about the likely outcome on Thursday? What they're saying is that uh, the Conservatives are probably still on course to win. So most polls, like the, an average of polls, would put the Conservatives about 10 points ahead. And uh, and what seems to have happened is that the the expected, you know, the losses which we might have expected at the beginning of the campaign, that the Conservatives were going to suffer in Scotland and in parts of the south of England, they may not actually happen or they may not be quite as bad. That's at least what the polls are suggesting. And then there are areas which uh, nobody was talking about at the very beginning of the campaign, like in Wales, where a poll just that came out yesterday suggested that um, the Conservatives could pick up eight seats in Wales, and so they'd probably compensate or more than compensate for anything that they might lose in Scotland. So what the polls are saying is that the Conservatives are heading for a, a majority government. But the problem with uh, relying on those polls is that what they're also saying is a lot of people are undecided, uh, that a lot of these races are uh, too close to call, and that uh, the, the electorate is extremely volatile. And so if you look back, uh, you know, say, just before this campaign started, there were uh, all of the uh, the three main political parties, the Conservatives, Labour and the, the Liberal Democrats, were all within about 10 points of one another. And now there's about 30 points separating them. So what you've seen is the Conservatives going up, Labour going up, and the Liberal Democrats going down. But uh, but the point is that, you know, if you can have that kind of change, which is quite unusual within a few weeks, you could also change uh, a couple of points here or there within the last couple of days. And a couple of points here or there could be the difference between a Conservative majority and a hung parliament. Now, the Labour Party has started to make overtures uh, towards the, the DUP, which, of course, uh, had a confidence and supply arrangement with the Conservative Party and the, the outgoing parliament. Um, what should we make of that? Well, at, at a press conference yesterday, John McDonnell was talking about uh, how Boris Johnson wasn't to be trusted. And Boris and John McDonnell, who you recall, uh, was a supporter of Sinn Féin uh, throughout the troubles rather as uh, Jeremy Corbyn was. And in fact, some of the things that John McDonnell said about Sinn Féin and the IRA were even more supportive than anything that uh, Jeremy Corbyn ever said. But anyway, he said, uh, I agree with Arlene Foster. Those are words you probably wouldn't expect to hear from me, but I agree with Arlene Foster that Boris Johnson is not to be trusted. And then he mentioned her again. And then in the question and answer session, I said to him, you've mentioned Arlene Foster twice, warmly, 
uh, if there was a hung parliament and the uh, DUP were to hold the balance of power, would you be able to work with them? And he said, you know, if there was a question of a minority Labour government, there would be no coalition deals, no pacts with anybody of any, or no arrangements of any kind, but that other parties would support the Labour government uh, or could support them on an ad hoc basis, policy by policy. And he said, I find it very hard to believe that the DUP would not support Labour's policies on increasing public spending and, uh, you know, for all of the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland. And he also said that the uh, that the Brexit deal that uh, Labour would try to negotiate and put to a referendum, that that would be a deal that would involve a customs union and that would involve the whole of the United Kingdom being under the same arrangements so that there would be no border on the island of Ireland, but there would also be no economic border in the Irish Sea. And he thought that also ought to attract the DUP. You mentioned Scotland a moment ago, Dennis. Just a, a word about Scotland. What do we expect? Um, do we expect any shift in the in the balance there? I, I get a sense that Nicola Sturgeon, she's not standing for election, of course, uh, but as the leader of the SNP, she seems to have had a good campaign. Yes, she has. Although the question really for the SNP will be whether they made the right call in uh, making the election as much about Scottish independence as about uh, Brexit. And uh, the latest projections would suggest that they will go from, say, 35 seats that they have now up to 45, 46, 47, which would be a good result for them. But what it has also done, that particular strategy, has been probably to have helped the Conservatives to say that they are the party that is uh, that will protect Scotland from uh, from another independence referendum. And so if you're a unionist in Scotland, forget about what you think about Brexit and vote for the Conservatives. And uh, all of the evidence suggests that for unionists in Scotland, the union trumps Brexit, regardless of what they feel about that. So I think what we are expecting there is a good result for the uh, for the, uh, the uh, SNP and probably a better than expected result for the Conservatives and a very poor result for Labour. But again, the margins in a lot of those seats, uh, you know, marginals between Labour and the SNP or the Conservatives and the SNP, they're tiny. And so a little fluctuation here or there would make all the difference. And so uh, the last couple of days now, Dennis, what ground do you expect the, the campaign to be fought on over the last couple of days? I, I guess Labour will be attempting to still to capitalise on, on Boris Johnson's bad day yesterday and to, to keep the focus on the NHS. Yes, what Labour will try to do is to keep the focus on the NHS, to keep it off Brexit and to to really uh, to try to make the final few days of this campaign more like a normal non-Brexit election campaign where they appeal to people on the basis of the issues. And the, there's no question but that in terms of policy and things like public spend, you know, spending on public services, the public is more is closer to Labour than it is to the Conservatives. What Boris Johnson will be trying to do is to keep the focus relentlessly on the idea of uh, getting Brexit done. And the line really is, uh, they've got a, a video which they've, uh, you know, which practically every user of YouTube in Britain sees every time they turn it on, which is basically of people saying, I wish they'd just stop arguing 
arguing about Brexit. Mm. And the idea is just make it stop. And, uh, you know, and so what they're hoping to do is to appeal to people, regardless of their view on Brexit. And most people in Britain, probably, if you ask them, would say they would prefer all of this Brexit business to just stop so they could get on with something else. So they're going to try to, uh, to, to go for that. And what the uh, Conservatives will also be hoping is that uh, a bit of a kerfuffle today about Labour's health spokesman, John Ashworth, that that would, uh, where he was recorded by somebody he thought was a friend who was a Conservative and uh, John Ashworth was uh, speaking very frankly about Labour's prospects in the election, that they wouldn't do very well and that uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was a bit of a disaster and that they really should have got rid of him uh, you know, properly in 2016 and they made a mess of it. And generally speaking, uh, you know, a bit too candidly, but in, in what he thought was a private conversation, this was leaked and the Conservatives are hoping that this will, uh, you know, will embarrass Labour. I don't think it's going to have quite the same impact as um, yesterday's events for Boris Johnson because nobody knows who John Ashworth is, but uh, whereas they all obviously do know about Boris Johnson. But certainly, it has taken some of the media attention away from that story about uh, Johnson and the NHS, and that will at least provide some kind of a breather for the Conservatives. I did see some discussion on social media last night as to people were questioning why Labour didn't send John Ashworth onto Newsnight to talk about the NHS round. Sent Barry Gardner instead, I think his international trade is his is his brief. I don't know if that's any any if that has any relevance to the um, the issue you've just mentioned or not. I, I don't know. Um, John Ashworth has actually been out doing a bit of a media round, uh, not entirely successfully, I think, because he his line really was that this was just uh, a bit of banter and that actually he was comparing himself with Alex Ferguson in the dressing room. This is something you would understand possibly better than me. And that he was sort of uh, talking about, uh, you know, giving the other side the impression that they were on course to win, but he was kind of playing with their heads somehow. But then, uh, you know, you'd hear a recording of what he actually said and the tone of the conversation and it sounded a bit different and also unfortunately for John Ashworth anybody who's had a private conversation with a Labour MP will recognise most of the things that he said because an awful lot of them say the same things. Okay so Dennis polls close at 10pm on Thursday Uh, when will we get the first indications of result? Well, there'll be an exit poll uh, at 10 o'clock uh, as soon as the polls close. So that will be the first indication. And then really, it's not until about uh, sort of three o'clock in the morning that uh, the really sort of, you know, the results start coming in thick and fast. I and mean, you get a few early ones and you get sort of early straws in the wind. But it really is that hour between three and four that, uh, you know, there's a huge number of seats, and including a lot of the marginals. They come through and so probably by that time at least you should have uh, a pretty clear idea of what's happening unless uh, the the result is very very clear and uh, it is for example a big victory for the Conservatives or it's very clear that they've fallen well short of getting a majority and then I think it probably, probably would be clear a bit earlier on. Okay well that's our last 2019 election preview Dennison. you'll be leading our extensive coverage on Thursday night and, and Friday and no doubt we'll review the outcome next week but for now thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to our London editor, Dennis Staunton. We're turning now to the latest Russia-Ukraine peace initiative. And progress was made in nine hours of talks on Monday in Paris, attended by the leaders of Ukraine, Russia, France and Germany. But a lasting settlement remains far from assured. Daniel McLaughlin is our correspondent in Eastern Europe and reports frequently from Ukraine. And he joins me now from Budapest. 
Dan, before we discuss these talks in Paris, brokered by Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron, can you sketch a picture for us of the current state of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Like, what are the issues at stake here and, and what's happening on the ground in eastern Ukraine? Well, on the ground, we have um, we still have nightly shelling in some areas. We have sniper fire. We have occasional skirmishes. Um, each, um, I mean, certainly not a week goes by without uh, Either side, that's the separatist side and the Ukrainian side, claiming that their people uh, they, they've had losses, they've had people killed and injured um, in the shelling and the skirmishes that I mentioned. Um, but the intensity of fighting is is far far less than it was back in the early days of the war, 2014, 2015. Um, and recently, we have seen some progress on. Um, withdrawing forces from the front line. Um, in preparation for the talks that you mentioned that took place in Paris yesterday, both sides agreed to pull back forces from three areas of the front line, um, and that was successfully completed a few weeks ago. That basically laid the groundwork for um, the talks to take place yesterday. Um, so much lower level fighting than we've seen in the past, but it is certainly uh, still rumbling on. There are still... Uh, people living close to frontline areas that still experience that daily shelling and those uh, daily clashes. And um, in terms of the local economy, of course, over five years of war, it's been absolutely devastated. When we talk about Donbass, this region in eastern Ukraine that is now partly controlled by the separatist forces, that was the main industrial zone for Ukraine before the war began. Um, so the regional economy there has been destroyed. Um, and that will obviously, that's a, a, a very long-term project to get all that done. And there's no prospect of the local economy recovering anytime soon from uh, the violence that's still taking place. And perhaps, John, just a reminder, because I'm, I'm conscious we haven't discussed this on the podcast for a while, although you've covered it extensively over the years, but maybe just even a reminder of what the conflict was about in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, back in winter 2013-2014, uh, there was a, a revolution in Ukraine based in Kiev, but also in lots of other cities around the country, um, against the uh, president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, and his government, which was backed by the Kremlin um, and was looking to take Ukraine uh, away from a track towards European Union and Western integration and back in towards a much closer relationship with Russia. Uh, after the revolution uh, in February 2014, when it ended with um, more than 100 protesters being killed on Maidan Square in central Kiev. Yanukovych, the president at the time, and his main allies fled to Russia. Uh, just a few days later, Russian forces uh, wearing unmarked uniforms without their insignia started to take over Crimea. Uh, in March 2014, Russia officially annexed Crimea after a referendum that took place under the control of the gunmen that were running Crimea at that point. And after that, um, a separatist conflict began in the Donbass area that we've mentioned in eastern Ukraine. Um, that's been fed by fighters from Russia, uh, military forces occasionally coming across from Russia, arms flowing in from Russia, financial, diplomatic and political support from Russia. And the border in uh, the Domba most of the Donbass region uh, between Ukraine and Russia is completely open. Um, so there is a constant, uh, well, a very regular flow of supplies, all different kinds of supplies coming across from Russia to the separatist forces to keep them going. And one of the key 
uh, elements of the talks that took place yesterday and which have been taking place now for uh, a number of years is how Ukraine can reestablish control over that border to close it down, to make sure that arms and ammunition and weapons are not flowing through to the separatists and basically establish as much as possible again of Ukraine's territorial integrity, even though Crimea has now is now in, under Russian control. And the Kremlin makes clear that it, it, it will not even discuss uh, any prospect of Crimea ever returning to Ukraine. And roughly, Dan, how many lives have been lost since this conflict began five years ago? What, what has the impact been on, on people in the region generally? The impact's been huge. Um, more than 13,000 people have been killed in the five and a half years of fighting. And more than 1.6 million people have been displaced from this region. So it's been huge upheaval. Um, Hundreds of thousands of those people have moved to other parts of Ukraine, and a large number have also moved. We don't know exactly how many, but probably hundreds of thousands as well have also moved across the border into Russia. So there's been a huge um, displacement there, huge disruption to the economy. huge uncertainty for people's lives. Um, And of course, for a Ukrainian economy, which was already struggling, even before the revolution, uh, the impact has been enormous of losing control over over its biggest industrial enterprises, losing control over its main coal mines, um, big chemical works and other industrial enterprises out there in the Donbass region, as well as the loss of Crimea. Um, So it's it's had a massive impact on, on the country politically, socially and economically. There was a ceasefire deal signed in Minsk, the capital of Belarus, in in 2015. Did that ever take hold? No, that didn't really take hold. It did lead to um, uh, the de-escalation of fighting. Certainly the intensity dropped um, and has stayed at a, a relatively low level. Even though, as I say, there are casualties, there are fatalities each week, it's at a much lower level than it was before the second Minsk agreement in um, February 2015. Um, but no, it, those the, the, the measures agreed at Minsk have not been implemented on the ground, partly because um, they effectively breach a number of red lines that Ukraine has and which President Zelensky now also insists that he will stick to. There are a number of things agreed in those in, in that Minsk deal in February 2015, which would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for a Ukrainian leader to accept now and to implement. Um, that deal was signed by President Pot- Petro Poroshenko at the time during one of the most difficult moments uh, of the conflict for Ukraine. It was during a battle for a place called Dibaltseva, which is a big um, transport hub in eastern Ukraine. And Ukrainian forces there were effectively encircled by separatist forces and by regular Russian troops who'd come over the border at that point. Um, And really at the barrel of a gun, um, Poroshenko signed up to this deal to, to secure the ceasefire and to try and save as many lives as he could in the Debaltseva area at that time. Um, but it became clear, I mean, almost immediately when, when people analysed uh, uh, the things that he'd agreed to, that it would be incredibly hard to maintain Ukraine as a unified state uh, and fulfil all the Minsk agreements. So almost immediately people realised this was very, very difficult to implement. And that is the key sticking point that we see now. Um, um, Agreement is possible and some agreement has been reached on some measures between Ukraine and Russia. But when it comes to the very core of the Minsk agreements, 
Ukrainian leaders, including Zelensky, says we can't do this. And the Kremlin insists, it insisted yesterday at the talks, uh, President Vladimir Putin when he was there, and the Kremlin's insisted again today that they can discuss lots of things, they can show flexibility on lots of areas, but, the, but Russia insists on sticking to the letter of the Minsk agreements uh, that were signed in 2015. And and that uh, Minsk agreement, Dan, and, and indeed the talks in Paris on, on Monday, which I'll come to now in, in, in a second, um, they're all part of a process known as the, the, the Normandy talks. You, you alluded to them there a moment ago, but again, just to give people, I suppose, uh, the, the full background picture as to why, you know, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel in particular are, are involved in these talks, just tell us what the Normandy t- talks are really and, and what countries are involved in trying to bring about this agreement between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, well, this is um, uh, the, the France and Germany uh, stepping in essentially as mediators, brokers, to try and um, get the Ukrainian and Russian leaders together. Uh, they did it before with Poroshenko and Putin. They did it for the first time yesterday with uh, Zelensky and Putin, um, effectively trying to uh, find a way to implement those Minsk agreements. Um, the problem has been that... Uh, Poroshenko did, as I say, find it impossible to implement the Minsk agreements, and his relations got worse and worse over time with Putin, and to the point where they they couldn't even have a telephone conversation. Um, And Putin effectively said that there's no point trying to negotiate anymore with Ukraine until we have a new leader in Kiev, until there's a new leader in Kiev. So the Normandy format talks, which are um, based around the idea, uh, uh, around trying to find ways to implement Minsk, uh, have not taken place, or until yesterday, they hadn't taken place since October 2016. So, uh, as Zelensky said when he was elected uh, earlier this year, it, it will just it would just be a victory, as he said at the time, just to get the Norm- Normandy talks moving again. Um, so the fact that he did manage to sit down with Merkel and Macron yesterday and Putin um, for Zelensky already, he says it shows that. Uh, it's not impossible to talk to the Russians and that an, an eventual peace, even though it will take a very long time to agree and, an e- and a much longer time to implement, it's not impossible and it's something that we should definitely try. But the talks were and are a potential banana skin as well for Zelensky, aren't they? And that, you know, as you mentioned there, he's, a, he's new in the job. He's a political novice. And there was some concern. I remember even during his election campaign, people were asking the question, would he be tough enough for, and wily enough for Vladimir Putin? So how did, how did he, how was he seen to perform in Paris on, on Monday? What was the, the body language like between the two? Well, he did, he did pretty well. Um, I mean, reading uh, the Ukrainian press today, listening to even Zelensky's critics, um, of which he has many. You know, there are two or three parties and two or three strong political leaders there, including Poroshenko, including former Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko, who have been critical of him, who say he's too quick, he's been too quick to arrange a meeting with Putin, that he was rushing into it in a way that um, meant that he maybe he wasn't prepared, that he could be tricked by Putin, a very experienced leader, of course. He's been running Russia for 20 years. Um, but they have been uh, very subdued in their criticism um, of him when he's uh, on his return to Ukraine. They said that effectively he did the best that he could. Um, he didn't make any rash agreements. He wasn't uh, duped into anything as they would see it by Putin. And as you mentioned there, Chris, the the, the optics of it, you could say, were very important. Um, he, he seemed to get on well with Macron and Merkel. There seemed to be a decent rapport there. There was no uh, sign that the, no sign that 
support from those two key leaders was waning towards Ukraine. Sorry to cut in that, but just you remind me, of course, of the, the infamous phone call between Donald Trump and Zelensky, the one with the transcript yeah. was published, and in which Zelensky, in trying to butter up Trump, really kind of joined in a yeah. kind of s- s- slagging of Angela Merkel. So there was no bad feeling anyway, or, or right. evidence no, of bad feeling. I wanted to mention that, because that, I mean, this was the, the biggest... Um, uh, engagement for Zelensky yesterday on the world stage so far. But a lot of the international talk about him has has revolved around this conversation with Trump. When the memo was published, it looked very bad for him. He was, you know, bowing and scraping to Trump, flattering him um, and, and, and coming across as very sycophantic. And as you say, he, he also agreed with Trump that uh, France and Germany weren't doing enough to help Ukraine. Um, so there were eyes on whether there would be any fallout from that yesterday in Paris. There was absolutely no sign of that. Um, but crucially, I mean, the, the, the key for, thing for lots of people who are watching this very, very closely in Ukraine, and thousands of people came out on Sunday to, to try and stiffen Zelensky's resolve, really, when he was going into the talks yesterday in Paris and to tell him not to cross any of the key red lines for Ukraine. They were looking to see how he behaved with Putin, to see if he could hold his own with Putin. Um, and he really needed to uh, come across as being composed, professional, well-prepared, um, and ready to stand his ground, not only to uh, make clear that there weren't any major fractures in the relationship with Macron and Merkel, but also to show that he was capable of sitting around the table and representing Ukraine strongly and professionally uh, in dealings with Putin. And he managed to do that. Um, there weren't any, he managed to, he managed the, um, his interactions with Putin well. Uh, there was no public handshake um, there was very little eye contact. It was clearly a very, the, the relations were chilly between the two men. And Zelensky himself, you know, he's, he's only just become a politician. He was a comedian until this time last year. Um, he's generally a, a, a quite a spontaneous, quite an informal, quite a friendly, warm character. Um, and it was dangerous for him going into the, these talks that he could be pictured, you know, shaking hands with Putin, cracking a joke, uh, just generally not coming across as very presidential. But he managed to avoid those pitfalls and and he came back to a pretty good reception in Ukraine today. And how much progress then was made in the talks then? What was agreed and, and what remains outstanding? Uh, well, Zelensky did say that he wants to come back with something concrete. And he did. He came back with a couple of things uh, of significance. He agreed with Putin that they would work on a full exchange of prisoners taken in the conflict, held uh, uh, in the, during the conflict um, by the Russian side, the Ukrainian side, and by the separatists. So that's being worked on now. They want to get that, make, get that full prisoner swap in place by the end of the year. They also want to implement a full uh, ceasefire along the full length of the front line. That's several hundred kilometers of front line. They want to get that done by the end of the year as well. That will be a major challenge. Um, and will be a real test to see whether um, everything can hold, you know, whether the security situation holds, whether um, Russia can exert sufficient pressure on the uh, separatists in, in Donbass to make sure that the, the, um, that the ceasefire holds and to, um, to ensure that, you know, the, on the Ukrainian side, they're happy enough, the military is happy enough with the security situation to, um, to implement that ceasefire as well. They're all, they also want to... Uh, withdraw troops from from each side of the front line. Uh, three other three um, additional areas of the front line by March next year. 
Um, and they're also looking to reconvene the Normandy talks in four months' time as well. So they were the main things that were laid down um, last night at the end of uh, something like nine hours of talks in Paris. And Dan, just to clarify one point, are these talks uh, focused exclusively on the Donbass region and eastern Ukraine? Or is Russia's annexation of Crimea part of the discussion or is it might it be part of the discussion at any stage? Well, certainly... Um, Ukraine considers that question to be still part of the, the whole future relationship with Russia. Um, and Zelensky has said that uh, there's absolutely no question of Ukraine under his presidency accepting Russia's annexation of Crimea. But they didn't get around to it yesterday. He said that they had too much, too many other things to discuss and they didn't get around to it. At the same time, because Russia has said um, there is no point discussing this, um, probably from the French and the German side, they also say at this point there's no there's no point trying uh, trying to compl- uh, complicate already very tricky talks over Donbass by introducing the element of Crimea as well. So they weren't a direct part of the talks yesterday, but certainly as regards the future relations, um, that will be a continuing ongoing issue. And it's also something that uh, Ukrainians insisted that Kiev that that that, that it. They insisted that Zelensky take a very strong line on Crimea if they end up, ended up talking about it in Paris. They didn't end up talking about it, but when he came back, he said um, that despite the fact that it didn't come up, there will be absolutely no acceptance of Russia's annexation of Crimea or, um, as regards Donbass, the federalization of, of Ukraine to give uh, autonomy to the Donbass region within uh, the Ukrainian constitution. They were two very clear red lines and Zelensky stuck to those as well in Paris. Okay, Dan, well, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks for that and that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.